0: Is there a way to overcome it if you like, like you had that tough oh, upbringing with the, bad, the household really, that didn't understand money?
1: Yeah, I mean, the real thing is, it's really starting to be aware, and then starting to educate yourself. Like I, I wrote a list of the, like the major biases that that impact people, mm-hmm. and that we'll go over in just a minute. But one of the number one ways to overcome them is to be aware of them. It's it's just yeah. having awareness that that you're not. You think you're for yourself, but sometimes you're actually going against yourself. You just don't realize it.
0: Welcome into the Free Retiree Show, your go-to podcast for your career, your finances, and where we learn from people that are killing it in both. I'm your host, Wealth Manager. Lee Michael Murphy, joined alongside Silicon Valley vets and career mentor, Sergio Patterson. What is up, everyone? And everyone's favorite attorney, Matthew McElroy. What's going on? For today's topic, we're going to be talking about behavioral finance. So what is behavioral finance? So it's basically psychological theories used to analyze how people think about the stock market. And their finances and different situations cause different behavioral outcomes. So for today's guest, we have Dr. Ryan Peckham and he is an associate professor from the University of Texas and he is one of the best experts on talking about behavioral finance and he's going to give us an insight into what are the common mistakes we make as investors. And so on the Free Retiree Show, we've talked about the common mistakes uh, we see from people in the investing arena. And uh, Serge, what's one of these things that, that's on your mind in terms of behavioral finance and things that you think people fall victim to in terms of investing and their overall yeah. decisions with you know finance?
2: Yeah. I think you and I were chatting about all the kind of like human characteristics and behaviors that impact the way we think about money and how these little things can impact our decisions, whether it's like you have these impulses to go buy a a shirt or a pair of shoes or a nice watch or whatever. I'm just curious like how all those like behavioral characteristics and the way we're wired impact how we think about should I invest two hundred a month in, in this stock or whatever, or should I go buy a two hundred dollar pair of jordans? Mm-hmm. I see a lot of people like I'm not one of them, but I see a lot of people impacted that
0: way yeah, and is it, it, the thing is like behavioral finance is so important because once you understand how your mind works and some of the deficiencies and I guess (laughs) the stupidity (laughs) of how we can make our financial decisions. Like once you're aware of it, you're able to combat those decisions. So Dr. Ryan Peckham, he finished his doctorate in business administration from the University of Liverpool, England in 2018. And he is also an investment advisor. And, you know, he teaches kids in college, you know, how to avoid these common mistakes. So we'll just bring them on right now. Dr. Ryan Beckham, thank you for
1: joining our show. Hey man, I appreciate it. Thank you for the, uh, the time and the opportunity. I'm excited to talk to you about some of this stuff. I think you're going to be surprised by some of these.
0: Yeah. So behavioral finance. So why don't you explain to us, like, what are some of the common, you know, mistakes that you see from, you know, investors and people in general, just about their money?
1: Well, I kind of did a list, like a list that we talked about, but one of the things I want to talk about first is just risk as a topic, because everybody always says, okay, what's your risk tolerance, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of different categories for risk. So there's risk tolerance, there's risk capacity, and then there's also risk perception. So one of the things, when you look at the academic research, people are really bad at coming up with what their risk tolerance is which is one of the things that most financial advisors, right? It's the first thing you discuss. Hey, tell me what your risk tolerance is. Mm -hmm. And they have to fill out a form that says, hey, would you be upset if your portfolio dropped by 10%, 5%, which is crazy because 90% of people are terrible with percentages. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like most people cannot do that calculation. I know that sounds crazy, but most people can't do that calculation. So there's also studies that show that people's risk tolerance can change weekly based on what happened in the market that previous week. So think about how hard that is for advisors to do that. But advisors have to have people fill out that paperwork so they can, as the attorney would say, COA, right? Right. So we had a conversation about, hey, what your risk tolerance was, even though that's going to change quickly. So as, a, as an advisor, that makes it hard. So risk capacity is, do you have the capacity in your financial life to be able to cover a loss? Like you might want to go invest in something that is super risky, but you might not have the capacity to withstand that if something were to happen. So for instance, since we're talking on what is this, January 21st, Bitcoin has now gone from 68,000 to 38,000 today. There's somebody who put every 50, all their money, which was probably 50 grand into it, but they don't really have the capacity to, to handle that kind of loss. And then the third one, which to me is the most important, is risk perception. And most investors are terrible at trying to perceive how risky something is. And they know that it's risky, but they can't really measure it. And then to wrap this all up and make it even more confusing for people, when most people are figuring out their risk tolerance, you don't really know what your risk tolerance is until you've actually been an investor who's ridden some stocks down. It's, it, everybody says, hey, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be great, but the stuff, if, the, if this gets turbulent, I'm going to be fine. But if they're a first-time investor, everybody's having a great time on the roller coaster until it starts going up and down and then you're throwing up in the trash can, right? So most people don't really know what their risk tolerance is until they've actually been in it. And that's what's hard because most of the time you look back at a chart and you go, oh, I could have ridden that out. But man, is it hard to ride it out when you're actually going through it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's the emotional tie that you
1: get. Like once you're, you can think about it conceptually when you're filling
0: out the paperwork, like, oh, this is where I think I am. But when it happens, like that is completely (laughs) a different like story. I've had people that you think they're, they say that they're one way. And then when, you know, the stock or the market comes crashing down, it's like they're about to jump off the ledge. They're like, Oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> or they, they get crazy. <laughs> so they do. I mean, emotion finances are very emotional for people. I mean, most people most families don't talk about finances. And we can talk about that. I mean, one of the studies I did, I mean, your parental background and your parents' relationship to money impacts your behavioral, your biases. A a lot. I mean, it it has a major impact on how you feel about investing in money later on in your life, whether you realize it or not.
2: I mean, I'd love to go into that if you don't mind. I mean, I don't want to derail the conversation. It totally makes sense. As parents, Matt and I are parents, Lee's a financial advisor. How do we impact our kids in the right way?
1: Well, you have to start talking to them about money early in that relationship, but it's not just money, but when it comes to investing, like if your parents were bad with money, and you remember your mom and dad fighting about money, you remember your dad or your mom talking about how the stock market was basically gambling, and they put that kind of opinion to you, that is, going, that, that is actually the hardest kind of investor to help later on in life. Because they have that preconceived notion that I remember my dad saying, like I've had a client who remembers his dad day trading away $3 million back in 1979 which is really hard to do back in 1979. That was a lot of money in 1979. (laughs) It's a lot of money, (laughs) and and it ruined his parents' marriage. So when he thinks about investing, it just brings up all those bad, negative memories, and he really has a hard time. And he'll even tell you, like, intellectually, I know what I should be doing, but emotionally, it's painful every single time. And it's those two brains of yours that are are constantly working against each other. It's going emotion, you know, intellectually, I know I should be saving fifty dollars a month, hundred dollars a month, whatever it is. But when you start, when you're putting in money and your account balance is dropping every month, emotionally, you're like, why am I doing this? I should go get those Jordans. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: Lee, it's going get (laughs) something for my money. We always give Lee shit for being the finance guy, but he always says you have to take the emotions out
0: of investing. Yeah. yeah. Right, Like, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like you've said that a few times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like if you're an emotional investor, you're just bound to make mistakes too. It's... uh the more yep. emotional you get. I mean, it's just like one of the things is like following the herd, right? You see, it sounds everyone gets all hyped when you know something's going great, like the GameStop or like some crypto. Like everyone's, like, yeah, we're all gonna get rich
1: together, and then they all run to the cliff, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's like they oh, go with so okay. much excitement. Yeah. yeah. And if you had parents that were good with money that taught you about investing and they they show you that the market goes up, it comes down, but you keep, you've seen it before, those kind of investors are used to it and they look at the drawdowns as an opportunity. Like, hey, man, I've been waiting for this for five years. Like, I, I need to put some more money. And they go start looking in the couch, trying to find money that they're the ones trying to sell the Jordans to raise 200 bucks to be able to put more money in. Right. And then if you didn't, if your parents didn't talk to you about money at all, that is still a better starting point than the negative piece. That that negative piece is really hard for people to come up to get away from later on.
0: How do you overcome it? Is there a way to overcome it if you like, like you had that tough
1: upbringing with the, bad, the household really, that didn't understand money? Yeah, I mean, the real thing is, it's really starting to be aware and then starting to educate yourself. Like I, I wrote a list of the, like the major biases that that impact people, mm-hmm. and that we'll go over in just a minute, but. One of the number one ways to overcome them is to be aware of them. It's it's just yeah, having awareness that that you're not, you think you're for yourself, but sometimes you're actually going against yourself. You just don't realize it. We kind of self-sabotage a lot. Like the number one mistake that individual traders make is they trade too often. And they normally cost themselves two to three percent a year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you extrapolate that over 10 to 20 years, I mean you can miss retirement. I mean, that's a lot.
0: So what do you mean by people that are trading too often? Like, What does that
1: look like? Well, like it, it could be day trading or it could just be the definition of an investor is somebody who stays in, a, in an investment more than two years, which mm-hmm. seems in today's world seems like forever long, right? And anybody who holds an investment shorter than that is considered a trader. Now, of course, day trading and all that, I give you a crazy statistic in 1996, when you looked at somebody's investment account, the average holding period of their investments were around six years. So think about the investment wow. in their account. The average holding period was six years. A couple years ago, that was already shortened to six months. Wow. And so it's just because of all the electronic trading, which has made things much more convenient. Obviously, commissions are, have basically gone away. But you know, these companies, the, the brokerage firms and all these traders, they make money on your activity. So they want you to trade as often as possible. And most individual investors do not realize that.
2: Yeah. Like yeah. the Robin Hoods of the world. Correct. A lot of my friends just think they're investors now. I just hopping on the app and I'm like, you need to call somebody. Like you might
0: make some money here and there, but like, I don't think it's a long-term strategy. All the data that's out there right there, Ryan, it, it's terrible. Like well, you're, most people are losing money when they're day trading.
1: They might have a win every now and then. Oh, yeah. The actual statistics on day traders is 5% of day traders make money. That's, that's the statistic, 5%. Yeah.
0: The percentages of what these people make are generally very low if they make a return. And then the big thing that no one talks about, everyone's all focused on performance, taxes. Like, why does no one ever talk about the taxes? Like, if people are acting like they live in some like, countries that, that don't take taxes it's like it's the unspoken most ridiculous thing about day trading i i just
1: don't get it yeah especially i mean taxes and fees depending on what kind of stocks you're trading some investors don't understand that if they're doing pink sheets that some of those firms actually charge them a little bit cuz they're harder to trade in and out of i mean there's a lot of fees that go that kind of go unseen sometimes. To me, it's just easier to buy Coca-Cola and let the dividends roll in, but, but you got to be patient. I mean, that, that's the thing. It's, it's all that it's instant. It, it's all about being instant. I was going
0: to say, yeah, why don't you give us some other uh, value gems? All
1: right. I'm going to give you some of the, the, the number one biases that, that affect investors. All right. So the first one is anchoring bias. So anchoring bias is when you see a price of a stock and then you constantly compare it to that price. So for example, this normally impacts people when they start tracking an investment for the first time. So let's say maybe you saw Amazon when it was $600. And so now three years later, you're going, man, I should have bought it at 600 bucks because you're anchored to that $600 price. Oh, I do that all the time. <laughs> and so, but it can also impact you another way where, I mean, let's take today, Netflix is getting crushed, right? So Netflix is high was 700. And now it's 400. So you might go, man, it was $700 three months ago. Maybe I should buy it at 400. And, but maybe their stories changed and maybe it's not a good investment. So, but we kind of get anchored to those numbers. And so most of the time it works where people won't get into a stock because they remember what they could have had it at. And it prevents them from buying a good company because they think they could have gotten it a little bit cheaper.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, so that's the first one. Some of the ones you're probably familiar with, there's one projection bias, which is when you take what's happening today and you just project that into the future. This company's always going to be doing good or this company's always going to be doing bad. Kind of like oil stocks a couple of years ago, nobody wanted to buy them, and now everybody wishes they would have, right? Last year that energy was the number one one that probably impacts your audience a little bit more would be overconfidence. So this is when somebody invests 100 bucks and they turn it into 200 invest another $100, turn it into 200 invest another $100, turn it into 200 and they go, man, I know what I'm doing. And they take the $600 they've made and they turn it into zero. Yep,
0: absolutely. Which, that which, sounds like uh,
1: a casino.
2: That right. literally sounds like black, playing blackjack yeah, or something. Yeah, it is. Well, and that
1: overconfidence bias, actually the demographic that that hits the most is young males. So men under the age of 28, basically.
0: Yeah, no, I have... Yeah, I have a few clients that have. They bought Apple. They bought Tesla, and those were like their originals that they got. And when they start investing, and they think <laughs> it's so easy, it's so easy. And then it's like they're like, "Oh, I'm just gonna buy this now, and make it'll be just as easy." And it's like, "Oh my gosh, where would all my money go?"
1: It's, right. Yeah, well, they had a taste of the good stuff. Well, in the last two years, I mean, it has made things a little distorted with all the COVID stuff. And if you notice, kind of those COVID stock darlings, the Pelotons, the DocuSign, the Zoom, I mean, they're all back down to where they were before COVID. Mm. I mean, it's kind of interesting. So, the other one that I think about for myself a lot is one called confirmation bias. So, confirmation bias is you think that a certain stock is a good buy, and then you just go read a bunch of research that agrees with it. Yeah. Right. Like you just go read all the stuff that agrees with it. So, that's an easy one to correct. So, if you're thinking about buying into a stock, go read an article on somebody who disagrees with you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But that's a really common one. Like, I think mm-hmm. we said this before on our podcast, it was like, Hey, whatever answer you're looking for, you can you find, find, find it. it's on the yeah. internet. It yeah. is there. That answer is there. Just Google it. You'll find that answer you're looking yeah. for.
1: <laughs> yeah. that That's one that is almost too common nowadays because of that. And then the next one is um, familiarity or home bias. So this is you're more likely to invest in companies that are kind of closer to your area. And so for me, like I'm in West Texas. So that is that I'm surrounded by oil and gas companies, right? Yeah. So you perceive them to be less risky than they actually are because you see them all the time. And every time you go to a restaurant, people are talking about them. And so you end up having this, you're more likely to invest in all the companies that you're surrounded by because you just don't, you see them all the time and you go, nothing bad could ever happen to them, but you're kind of tied into them already because you live in the area and your property values and all that kind of stuff. So it'd be like if somebody was in, I don't know, the state of Washington, maybe they only invest in Amazon and Costco and Starbucks or wherever y'all are at, you see the same kind of companies. And so that one is kind of interesting because it helps you and it harms you. It helps you because if you're familiar with the company, you're more likely to stay invested in it. You'll ride it up and you'll ride it down and you'll hold on to it, but you just don't want to get too many companies that where you just get overweighted in in a certain area.
2: That's a really good one. We're all in the Silicon Valley and I work in in tech and pretty much all my single stock ones are all tech companies. Yeah, And I didn't even think about it until you just said that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it happens quicker than you think too. So these other ones I have, you might not have heard of. One of them is called myopic loss aversion. Which is the tendency that the more often you look at your investments, the riskier they start to appear to you. Ooh. Because you're constantly seeing the ups and the downs. So if you have somebody who's just looking at their phone or they're looking at their investments all the time, those investments will start to appear more risky. Yeah. Love it, that one. That that is a good one. <laughs> Yeah, so checking my crypto account ten times a day
0: is not a good thing. <laughs> 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 it's,
1: it's a,
0: that's another thing. Is like it's very interesting how just the the color of the information. Like if it's red, it's down. If it's green, it's up. I've even felt uh, felt my own like self falling in, victim into these like emotions because it's like I might actually have twenty thousand more dollars than the day before, and then I look it, but it's red. Or if I check in two days, it might be red. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, this is terrible. I, I feel so much pain and anguish. And then the opposite is true as well. Like it could show green, but I, I could have lost a bunch of money. So it's just interesting how like, just the colors are like, they make yeah, you it sad does. or happy.
1: <laughs> it, it does. I try to get a lot of my clients to focus on share count. Like look at how many more shares you had than you did this time last year because the dividends have been buying you more shares right? And think about the share count and the accumulation of shares versus just the overall price. Mm -hmm. And that that seems to help a little bit because really that's what you're wanting to do at some point. I mean, the purpose of investing is to replace your income at some point. So if you can get some dividend-based stocks that are paying you and they just keep buying shares for 10, 20 years, and then one day you say, okay, I no longer want them to buy more shares. I want them to send me a check." That's a much easier way to think about it than just worrying about the ups and the downs all the time. Yeah, I like that. So this other one's disposition effect. This one doesn't really give away what it does, but disposition effect is your inability to take losses. And this one is uh, pretty interesting because the study that that was done on this, they analyzed 10,000 trades and two thirds of the time, people are more likely to sell a winning investment than a losing one, which is kind of- Two thirds of the time? two thirds of the time. And the reason is because when you make a an investment and you start to have a, a winner, let's say, you become risk adverse, meaning you don't want to give that gain back up, right? Like I've made this money, I don't want to give it up. Mm. When you start losing money on an investment, some you become risk seeking, which is basically like, F it, I'm just going to go down with the ship. Like. I've already lost (laughs) this much money. Whatever. I'm just going to go. I'm just, whatever happens. And what's interesting about this is that most of the time, winners keep winning and losers keep losing. But when you sell a losing investment, you're almost like, you're basically admitting that you made a mistake, but it's just part of it. Like you're never going to get it right. So, you have to, on this one, when I'm teaching people about this you have to think when you make an investment, you have to think about what's going to happen. What are you going to do before it happens? So like, let's say you buy an investment and it drops 10%. What are you going to do? Are you going to buy more? Or are you going to sell it? But you have to make that decision before it happens. Otherwise your emotions will betray you. Yeah. Does that make sense?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does.
1: It
0: does.
1: Have a game plan before. <laughs> you got to have a game plan. So, you know, that one... But, but most of the time, most individual traders, they're just thinking, I'm going to buy this because somebody told me to buy it. They're not even, they don't, I've asked people, well, what does this company do? It's on the
0: Reddit forum.
1: It's it's gold. We got yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what does this company do? They got no clue. Mm-hmm. I'm like, man, how are you putting your money in a company and you don't even know what they do or how they make money? I mean, that is, I mean, at that point it's gambling. And, you know, Lee and I have talked about this before, but sometimes the stock market turns, in, turns into people's version of gambling. 100%. It really does for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. It, um, it definitely was with the whole AMC and GameStop yeah. craze. That was just a casino. I mean, people made tons of money, yep. but then they lost it all. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, that's the thing is most people, don't, I mean, it's a market, right? So you got to have buyers and sellers. If you're buying a stock, somebody's got to be selling it to you. I mean, we kind of forget that sometimes.
0: Yeah, and that that goes back to the whole why there's so many conflicting views of like how people look at the stock market. Some people do view it as the casino because when used the wrong way, it can not be the casino. It's yeah. You, yeah. That's why we've said before, like you got to look at the data. You got to look at ec- academic based data is where if you're going to be an investor, you got to rely on that, not Reddit.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> Although- I always I laugh at the the academic articles that I read because a lot of times the uh, the researcher will say. Okay, taking a rational investor, like they always like, that's what they always say is we're going we're gonna to assume we have a rational investor. And I always go, well, you don't, like, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have a rational investor. All investors are pretty much irrational, which is what creates opportunity. And then kind of one of the last ones I have for you here is propensity for maximization. And that's basically kind of goes with hindsight bias, where you're looking back. But propensity for maximization is when you look back at a chart and you say, "Well, if I would have bought it at this low and sold it at this high, I'd be a cajillionaire." And so you're basically looking back, saying, "If I could have just, you know, bought it here, sold it here, I would be doing so much better," which is impossible. But people do that all the time. That's great. What's interesting is the articles uh, that you can
0: sign up for or these investor groups i have i have seen that on their article predictions where they say, Oh, last month the stock we talked about went up this percent. And you're like, and you're looking at these percentages like what this can't be right. And then so what I do is I've tracked a couple of these and I said, like, let's let me see like their I saw so actually I've signed up for their articles to just see like how are they doing this? And then what happens is they don't tell you the price to buy in at. They just make the recommendation and then over time, they take the low and they take the high. And they're like, oh, look, our recommendation did that percent of gain. It's like, dude, that mm-hmm. is such a crazy way to look at it. Just taking the very bottom to the very top at any whatever's, whatever's the most uh, favorable for your pitch. It's like it's, it, it should be illegal. Yeah. But a lot of even yeah. companies do that, like these investor companies or trading companies.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of bad data out there and I don't know how you ever get Ahead of it at this point, I mean, like if you—I mean, if you just go to Yahoo Finance and you're scrolling through the articles, I mean, every two to three is an ad. But mm-hmm. so yeah. you just don't—you just don't realize it. It's somebody, this market expert, click here to find out what his prediction is, yeah. or whatever. You know, I mean, and to me, that's one of the problems for somebody who is a new investor is like, where do you even start? How do you even get a baseline of what's good information to build your investment philosophy out of? Right. And that, and I really feel for people who are trying to do that. I mean, it's really tough. I mean, especially even if you're looking on social media, I mean, everybody's got some kind of scheme or something for people yeah. to sign up for, man. It's daunting.
2: That was actually going to be my question is like for the everyday or new investor, where do, maybe it's a tough question to answer, but like, where do you recommend that they actually get into investing on their own? Or do they find somebody that can help them, like a firm or an advisor or like, What's your recommend for our listener out there that's just trying to get started? Like, What are are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, some people want to do research before they talk to an advisor, which is fine, but at least having somebody that can, even if they go to an advisor in their town and say, I want to learn about advising, what are some books you would recommend? What are some things that you would recommend to at least have a, a proper baseline of it? Because all these biases that I've gone over with you The literature shows that most of them, being aware of it and educating yourself is the number one thing you can do. Now, funny thing, Sergio, when you become too educated, you're more likely to suffer from overconfidence bias because now you know everything, right? That's 22. So, (laughs) So it's kind of funny how that one works, that people who are super experienced and educated on the investment business are actually more likely to suffer from overconfidence, Because I know more than the other person. I've studied more. So it's kind of interesting how that one comes back to bite you, but you do have to be able to have like just a baseline of even if you just bought like an academic personal finance book or something to kind of get started or just looking for different avenues. But I think that's why like your podcast, my podcast are important places for people to be able to get a baseline. Because it is hard. I mean, like, if you're going back to in the beginning, like, if your family didn't know about money, if they were bad with money, you're it's already stacked against you. Like, self education yeah. is going to be the main way that you are able to change your habits and change your, and also your mental talk.
2: Yeah. And I, I know you educate students as well. I, I still think there's a huge gap in the education, like the K through. 12 and even college, I, I, didn't ta- I didn't get taught anything around finances in school at all. My parents were pretty good. Right. They gave me a little bit, but like, I did not have one course on finance. Yeah, like Budgeting, saving, nothing.
1: Right. I think that's still like that today for most public schools.
2: Correct well, me like, if yeah. I'm wrong.
1: No, I mean, like it's, I mean, I'm fighting for to try to get personal finance as one of the main courses you have to take to be able to graduate from college. Like, your personal finance should be a requirement. Yes. I can't tell you how many doctors and attorneys and people that I work with that are very smart people, but they've gone through 12, 15 years of school and they never had one personal finance class. And now you're a doctor and you're expected to run a, a medical practice and you've never even had a business class. Like, what kind of expectation is that?
0: Oh, so, since you are a, a university professor, what do you see from the next generation? Like, w- in terms of like finances, like where do you think they're going to do great and where do you see them struggling? I think
1: that they're going to be better than a lot of people think because of COVID. I can't even tell you how many, how it's gotten, it's peaked their interest. It has peaked their interest to be interested in investing, right? Mm-hmm. The GameStop, all that. And if they lost money, this is going to sound horrible, but it's like a great thing because it, it's a it, it teaches you a lesson and you want that lesson at 21, 22. <laughs> You don't want that listening, right? When you can actually lose enough money that it really hurts you, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, I was shocked because a couple of years ago, I would have students come in and they would be talking to me about Forex. And all this stuff. And I'm going, where'd you find this out? And they go, oh, me and all my high school friends, we're trading futures. And I'm going, man, because with cell phones, you can do anything. And here's the crazy thing. A lot of most people, you probably don't even realize this, but most of the apps to download for like crypto or trading, the age requirement is four and above. You only have to be four years old. (laughs) Oh, wow. <laughs> because it's considered like a bank app, like almost like you're checking your balance it, uh, on your Chase app. Huh. So all these 16-year-olds, they link, they link their debit cards or whatever. And so as part of my class, I, I sign up with the, with a service that basically I give them a million dollars, fake money, but they, it trades in real time. And I start teaching them how to do it because everybody says they want to be a millionaire. Well, what are you going to do with the money when you get it? And so my hope is that they lose a bunch of money and they're reckless. And then over the semester, I kind of teach them about it. But I think they're going to be good when it comes to finances. When you ask me, what, what am I worried about with them? I would say it would be patience. No, patience. Nobody wants to get rich slow. It's that instant gratification. It's like the Uber
2: generation, right?
1: I push a yeah, button I mean, on
2: my phone and I get the car right of Right.
1: I mean, nobody wants to get rich slow. When you tell people, hey, I can give you the formula, and it guarantees that you're gonna be a millionaire by 60. They look at you like you're crazy. Like, I mean, like 60. I mean, like
0: <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean, you mean 26? I mean that kind of deal. Yeah. But but life's expensive, man. It's hard. I mean, it's tough to to get everything going.
2: That's pretty cool. Is that investing? Is that a free application? The one where you're able to give them the million yeah, million dollars yes. and
1: take money and then is that yeah, free? So your listeners could do it too. So you can go to marketwatch.com. Okay. And there's some games you can click on, you can sign up, and then there's games there. And then you can basically it's something good that all early investors should do is you can basically trade in real time with fake money. And you can see how you would and also, so that's
2: interesting. Um, that's
1: smart for kids. Yeah, yeah it, it's what a great smart, way to learn. And, and but what's funny is like it's because they know it's fake money, it doesn't have the, uh, the emotional twinge, but it's still a good experience. I mean, it's, it, it teaches you how to make a trade, like an online trade. There's different educational videos. I mean, it, it kind of teaches you the ins and outs before you go on onto a live platform, which is what I like.
0: It would be a cool experiment is if you could tie it to the, the grades that they get in the class.
1: Well, they do. always <laughs> always tell them the winner, the winner gets a hundred The winner gets a hundred and everybody else gets below that. So, I mean, it's not a participation deal. (laughs) Yeah. There's no participation trophies here. (laughs) Yeah. The funny thing is I did have a student one time who typed in the wrong symbol, typed it. He thought he was buying Sony and he typed in some other, it was some pharmaceutical company. Three days later, they got some FDA approval and the stock quadrupled overnight. And so his account's at like three and a half million and he bought the wrong stock. So that's wow. a hard lesson. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome. So, uh, Doctor Ryan, could you tell us uh, about how people can find out more about what you're doing and how they can follow you?
1: Yeah. So my my podcast is the Investor Professor, and so you can listen there. Just got that started last year. Got some students helping me with that. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Follow that on Instagram and we got all kinds of good stuff. Uh, You can go listen to Lee's conversation. That one turned out really well. So, but that's the main spot where you can find
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, man. We love what you're doing and thanks for helping us understand how our crazy minds work and how they can work against us in the the world of investing.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity, guys. Thank you. Thank you.
0: It's been awesome having you on, man. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Free Retiree Show. So long for now. You should contact your own tax advisor, financial advisor, or attorney to answer questions about your specific situation or needs before acting upon this information third-party source information or comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of LinkedIn Incorporated or Microsoft Corporation. The opinions of attorney Matt McDowell do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.